Coffee House Shots is sponsored by Crux, one of the world's leading boutique asset management firms specialising in Asian, European and UK investments. We invest in the long term and our dedicated team of investment professionals have decades of fund management experience between them. Visit cruxam.com for more information. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by Fraser Nelson, Isabel Hardman and James Forsyth. Last night, Boris Johnson suffered the biggest Tory rebellion of his premiership. Nearly 100 Conservative MPs voted against the government's plans for vaccine passports. Fraser, do you think Number 10 were caught off guard by the size of the rebellion? Yes, I think they were, although I'm not entirely sure why. I mean, the Spectator was flagging this several days in advance with our live list of rebels. We got to 81. And obviously, if that's 81 prepared to go on the record... And by the way, we're not, not to wimp out of it either. They pretty much all of them went through with it, apart from two. Um, You're welcome to name them. Well, one of them was um, Royston Smith, who's the Tory MP for Southampton Nitchin. Now, he actually, he wasn't on our list, but he actually DM'd us via Twitter to point us to the comments he'd given to his local newspaper, where he was saying that he has never supported uh, vaccine passports and he still doesn't. So out of going out of his way to contact us, he then votes for them and therefore does support them. And I'll have to see if his local paper um, will, um, will update. And then the other one was Robert Goodwill, who's MP for Scarborough Whitby. Again, he wasn't on our list, but his people then put out a, a little statement letting it be known that uh, he was um, going to rebel. Um, Guido Fox did a special line praising him for, for exactly that. And in fact, no, he didn't rebel. He voted for the government. So I'm not quite sure what happened to those chaps, uh, whether they had a sudden change of heart. But both of them went out of their way to say they were going to rebel and then didn't. On top of that, of course, there were going to be others who who don't want to advertise in advance of a rebellion. So I can't work out why Number 10 was so taken aback by this. Again, it must it goes to show just the appalling level of party management, um, the Prime Minister's own grossly exaggerated confidence and his own ability to sway people. He gave a personal speech to backbench MPs earlier on saying, look, I've got no option but to do this. And using this language doesn't really count for somebody engaging their brain. I mean, because why does he have no option but to implement a vaccine passport system which doesn't work, has been demonstrated not to have any efficacy in reducing the transmission of it? I mean, you might as well pass a law asking us to, to nail a bulb of garlic to our door to wade off the infection. I mean, and say he's got no choice but to do that. People want to know if the public health measures being taken are likely to make things any better for anybody. And number 10 has been consistently unable to demonstrate that vaccine passports would help, but they want people to do it anyway, and they didn't. So I think number 10 was well, was obviously taken aback. This suggests that there's still a lot of reality dodging going in that place. And the Prime Minister's position now is just incredibly weak. If you look at the other mass rebellions of this style, you've got the Iraq rebellion against Tony Blair, you've got the Brexit rebellion against Theresa May, Prime Ministers tend not to recover very quickly from rebellions of his size. In fact, they tend to be the beginning of the end. It could well be, but that's what Boris Johnson has unwittingly and very avoidably done to himself. James, is this the beginning of the end for Boris? Uh, I think the thing that will hurt number 10 the most is this rebellion came just just very soon after Boris Johnson had turned up to kind of make a personal plea to Tory MPs to back him at the 1922 committee. And I think it also raises further questions about their parliamentary intelligence network in that they were getting a bit more optimistic, but they were pruning back 
the number of people rebelling, that, uh, that people were beginning to accept the case that new restrictions were needed because of how fast Omicron spreads. And I think the worry for Boris Johnson is this isn't a rebellion isolated in one particular part of the Tory party. If you look through this list of, of close to 100 names, you know, they, they come from every wing and every generation and every geographical area of the Tory party. And I think that is, that is the problem for him. And there is nothing more corrosive of a Prime Minister's relationship with his parliamentary party than having to rely on the opposition to get his business through. Now, I think when things get really bad is if this becomes a pattern. If, 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 if Boris Johnson feels that he will need more restrictions in the new year uh, and he ends up having to repeatedly rely on Labour votes to get them through, then I think that will, will be bad for his relationship with his own party. I thought it was striking last night that Geoffrey Clifton Brown, who is, you know, the treasurer of the 1922 committee, you know, was prepared to kind of openly speculate about votes of no confidence and the like last night. I think it is a sign of, of how strained things are in the Tory parliamentary party now. I think there is, it, it, it was hard not to have a sense of deja vu for the main meaningful votes last night because it was kind of all those dynamics were there. You know, the rebels said the, the rebellion was bigger than number 10 expected. The rebels were saying they were the mainstream of the party. Lawless cabinet ministers were spitting tax at the whip's office. I suppose the only difference is that while as with Theresa May, because the meaningful vote didn't pass, she had to keep coming back to this issue. Boris Johnson did at least get it through, albeit just with Labour votes. And I think, so I think this really does now, I think does now determine, turn on whether he has to come back again for more votes or more restrictions where he is again relying on Labour votes or not. Isabel, when it comes to that rebellion, how much do you think is specifically on vaccine passports and how much is a general dissatisfaction with Boris Johnson? I mean, I think most of the, the MPs who did rebel would argue it was about the principle, but there are a lot of things that they could rebel against uh, where they're unhappy with the principle, but they choose not to. They choose to try to get it changed, you know, by their colleagues in the Lords, for instance, or, or something like that, hoping that it won't come to the point where they need to rebel. And as James and Fraser have both said, that there are so many aggravating factors in this rebellion that made people who were unhappy about the idea of vaccine passports think, no, I've got to rebel against this. And I thought Mark Harper, who's the chair of the COVID recovery group, his speech in the chamber underlined why quite a few people were rebelling. He said that people needed to send a message to the prime minister and talking to conservative MPs over uh, the past 24 hours and the past few days, a lot of them really want to send a message to Boris Johnson that he can't take his majority for granted, that he can't just rely on his own natural charm uh, to, to win and to get his own way, and that actually he needs to listen to his party. And there is this failure of parliamentary intelligence. He still hasn't really got a, a good operation that's bridging the gap between him and the party in Parliament. Normally that's done by his PPSs. Uh, one of his PPSs was actually at one point rumoured to be unhappy about vaccine passports, which, which shows that uh, all is not happy there either. There's deep discontent about Dan Rosenfield, his chief of staff, and a lot of MPs who are agitating for a change there as well. So there's lots of calls for changes in Boris Johnson's operation, but what's really upsetting Conservative MPs is that the one thing they can't change is Boris Johnson. I mean, that is one of his selling points. He's his own man. He, he's never changed 
according to political tides. He's obviously changed his policies, but he's always been quite happy to be himself. And he's not going to change. And so I think that's one of the things that is upsetting Conservative MPs. It's almost as though they've got to the end of the honeymoon period with the Prime Minister. And some of the things they found cute to begin with, they're now starting to find quite frustrating. Fraser, we're already hearing reports that the government is considering expanding the places vaccine passports are used. Can Boris Johnson really do that, given the level of discontent? Oh, yes, he can. And yes, he will. I think that he's proving to be a deeply illiberal prime minister. This has been my, my biggest concern with him. This is a, he is, he's turning into the sort of prime minister he used to warn us against when he, was, when he was writing. And I don't think it's because necessarily that he's an authoritarian character. He's just lazy. And if you're lazy, then you will reach for the big, the big state solution to every given problem. I mean, it, right now, anybody can ask for vaccine passports now. I'm, I was all set to go to the Winter Wonderland in Hyde Park this weekend. Now, that's an outdoor event. It doesn't fall into the government's guidance for requiring vaccine passports, but now we've been emailed saying that they're going to turn away anybody who doesn't have a vaccine passport to prove their identification. That is immediately. So we're going to get a lot of people. And when laws are badly drafted, as rushed laws always are, they tend to have a disproportionate effect because people get scared and they don't want to be on the wrong side of these laws. Now, and one of the things that we also unfortunately know from Boris Johnson's government is that you just can't trust them. When they promise not to do something, you cannot take them at their word. Uh, and I, I find it quite difficult to, to say this because I spent a long time actually you know, saying that he would be a good prime minister and that people would slag him off, but by and large he kept his promises. But remember this time last year when they were collecting the vaccine data, they promised on the record time and time again, Michael Gove, Nadim Zahawi, the, the vaccines minister, was saying that they would not introduce vaccine passports, that it was a liberal thing to do, it went against the British way of life, they wouldn't do it. And then when, when, when they introduced the tech, they were saying, look, we're just exploring the technology, uh, just allow, give us this amount of time, we're not going to introduce them. And, and then they did. And this happens so often, the slippery slope argument. So already the vaccine passports, we're told, will be tightened until they're only really valid for people who've had their boosters. Now, right now, Boris Johnson has promised the rebels that he did two, he did two things to win them over. The first thing was promise them that he would not go forward with compulsory vaccination, an idea he himself raised at this disastrous press conference last week. So that's promise number one. Promise number two is that he will always have this bolt-on lateral flow option to the vaccine passport, which, by the way, this is what he's using to say it's not a vaccine passport after all, although of course it is. Um, but you can obviously see circumstances where they will say, oh, the circumstances have changed. We've had a SAGE committee report. We've got to tighten restrictions. And so you'll get those tightened up. It may well be so that these vaccine passports are used so to deny entry or to basically harass those who haven't got whatever the latest iteration of the government booster is, you can certainly, the technology is there for them to be extended to the flu jab or, or other kind of, um, like the Chinese government is quite advanced now in, in, in restricting people's access on the social credit system. We've now got that technology in Britain. Parliament passed it last night. So I've got absolutely no confidence that it will end where the Prime Minister says it will end. I'm not entirely sure that he's in control. And I think that the system, there's so much money behind vaccine passports 
sports now and the concept of digital identification. There is a white hole juggernaut so big, but the Prime Minister has been unable to control it. If you were to go, just for a joke, laugh, I went to my Alexa a couple of days ago and asked them about vaccine passports. And Alexa tells me that I need vaccine passports to go about my daily business. This was before the vote had happened. So sometimes the civil service is very slow to move. Other times it's so fast, but is literally programming its propaganda into Alexa to tell you that a law has passed even before it has actually passed. So I'm afraid to say that one of the big changes for me this year is I have lost confidence I had that you can trust Boris Johnson. I no longer think you can. And that is a shame because I spent a good chunk of my journalistic career, broadly speaking, on his side and thinking that he would be a good prime minister. Isabel, do you think Fraser's sense there that he no longer trusts Boris Johnson is shared by quite a few Tory MPs, maybe the majority? Yeah, I think a lot of Conservative MPs feel really betrayed and disappointed in the Prime Minister. I think some of his opponents might say, well, what did you expect? One of the things that he's, you know, he's he's been consistently untrustworthy throughout his career, they would argue. But, but there's been a, a pattern of behaviour, a pattern of scandals, and the common denominator has, has always been Boris Johnson and his judgment. Whether it's in not giving the full truth about Christmas parties, whether it's in trying to overhaul the standard system with Owen Paterson, whether it's in the uh, redecoration of the Downing Street flat and the way that that was funded, uh, everything at the heart of that is, is, is to do with Boris Johnson. And so the the man who rescued the party from an electoral mess is now causing the party a huge amount of damage and that's what's really upsetting conservative MPs who thought look we we can put up with the fact that he's possibly amoral because he's a winner and now they're thinking well we don't know whether he's a winner even his supporters who I've been speaking to are upset and they feel like he's lost his way they feel as though he's let them down they're saying that he's got three months really to get it back together again Otherwise, he could just be in office but not in power. Now, that's an extraordinary place for a prime minister with a majority this big to end up in. Theresa May was in office but not in power for much of her premiership because she threw away her majority in a snap election. Boris Johnson won a majority in an election and has managed to squander it, basically, while it still exists. Yeah, and so much of this was unnecessary. I mean, if you take the biggest single betrayal, which is his promise not to raise taxes, he stood for election on that specific promise which he signed. Now, he didn't have to make that promise. A lot of people going into election, they won't do because they think, well, you know, you don't know what the future will hold. Nobody forced him to put up taxes. It was something he chose to do. This is not to do with COVID. This is to do with his decision that he wanted to bail out lots of rich people who would otherwise have to pay for their own care. And that is what um, just strikes me. Just you know, when you make a promise in politics, a big promise like that, you people will work out: Are you the sort of politician we can trust or not? And he seems to have placed a very low value on his own promise. If I, if I were him, you, you'd think that he would do anything before he breaks one of the very few cast iron promises that he made as a politician. And he seems to have thinking that you can just mutter about COVID and get away with it. Well, I'm afraid to say that you, that you can't now. And when you remember, when, when, he, when he became prime minister, two years ago, he, was, he just fought an incredibly successful election campaign where a lot of people who'd never voted Tory before thought that they could trust him, not the Tory party, but him. 
And now we see opinion polls saying that he's lost 60% of Brexit voters, never mind Remainers. And when you look back in the um, Prime Minister popularity polling, you have to go back to, I think, John Major is the only Prime Minister in modern history who's been less popular at this stage in his premiership than Boris Johnson is now. And John Major had to go through Black Wednesday. Now, national crises, like another bout of COVID, are actually supposed to turn the population behind the leader. That tends to be what happens in this crisis. But right now, people are looking at Boris Johnson and his behaviour to this, thinking, are you really the man that you stood in front, who stood in front of us only two years ago? Because people can remember that election, they can remember voting for him, they can remember what he promised, they can remember him posing, as he told the rest of his party, as a liberal conservative. And there comes a point where you've got to give up hope, thinking, well... Boris is going to, um, you know, that, that this is just COVID after we're going to get normal service. The good old Boris will be back sooner or later. There comes a point where you need to accept that you've been mugged by reality. And this really, the person we're seeing is the person that we can realistically expect in the future. James, just finally, do you think Boris Johnson will lead the Tories into the next election? Uh, I think that that is less likely than it has been at any point in his premiership to date. Um, I was chatting with one very loyalist minister last night and they were making the point that part of his problem is that his support in the parliamentary party has always been broad but shallow. And the problem is he's alienated lots of the groups that were closest to him. So, you know, when Boris Johnson started out as the MP for Henley, um, remember he voted for Ken Clark in the Tory leadership contest. He was a kind of, he was a, he was a darling of the kind of one nation wing of the party. But those relations were strained by, by Brexit. And then he kind of got very close to the kind of more libertarian Brexiteer wing. I mean, I think probably the crucial moment in the leadership contest was when the ERG decided to back him rather than dominate Rob. And yet now it is Steve Baker of the ERG leading the charge against him on all these COVID measures. And I think this is the question kind of, you know, what is his constituency? Who is he going to fall back on? And I think to, just to pick up on, on, on Fraser's point about Boris Johnson and trust, I think Boris Johnson has always known that, you know, trust is a vulnerability to him. And that's why he's always taken, he had until very recently, always taken quite a literalist approach to um, manif- like manifesto commitments. Uh, do you remember that, you know, he was very loath to get rid of a triple lock, even though there was a distinct argument that COVID and the kind of generational imbalances that that had created made it, you know, made it particularly indefensible. Uh, and yet, you know, and so I think the decision to raise taxes, I think that that, that has caused him an awful lot of problems because it has it has raised all of those questions about trust, which Boris Johnson had normally tried to kind of separate out his political promises from his other promises. And I think the problem he's got now is that these things have all come together. I, I also think there is a there is a there is a kind of question here which it, which which we don't know the answer to, which is you know what, and I think this is part of what is driving the Tory MP anger is what is his strategy for dealing with COVID, right? We were told it was all vaccinations, vaccinations, vaccinations. And yet now, even with a very high number of double jab people, you know, that there are restrictions. Now, they're doing this big booster drive at the moment. I think I think you cannot underestimate how much turns on the success of this booster drive or not. I think if it, if it goes well, you can see that he might be able to recapture some of that spirit of the early vaccination drive, the early success of that programme. If it doesn't deliver, 
I think the danger for him is that it turns into another example of the thing that Ke- the bruise that Keir Starmer keeps punching most effectively, which is you know that Boris Johnson he overpromises and underdelivers. You know why, why would you believe what he says? Because he tells you that there's no circumstance in which you need to sell your home for care. That's not quite true. There's always small print attached. I mean that's the danger for him, which is you know these boost numbers really do need to get up to a million a day. Otherwise, I think people will start saying, well, you went on national television and said that everyone would be offered a boost that everyone would have, you know, by the end of the year, that hasn't happened. Although I do wonder, James, if he's placing a little bit too much store in the boosters with the Delta variant, which is what we had until a couple of weeks ago. If you had a booster, then you had 93% protection against um, symptomatic disease. So therefore, 7% of people, not very many, would be unprotected after their vaccine. That 7% has risen to 24% now, because only 76% of people are protected against symptomatic Omicron by a booster. Now, it's important here to, of course, stress what we're talking about. The real gain from vaccines is to stop people getting seriously ill. We're not talking symptomatic. Symptomatic means you can have a sniffle or a sore throat or something. We all know, probably, well, I certainly know plenty of people now who are double jabbed, who are boosted, who have yet gone down with Omicron and are having relatively mild symptoms. They haven't yet published um, any figures against severe Omicron. And it may well be, by the way, that Omicron is, is, is incredibly mild. South Africans are yet to see any serious hospital issues, and they've had this thing since, since the beginning of last month. So uh, I think the government's main hope, really, is that Omicron turns out to be nowhere near as severe as Chris Whitty thinks it is. His private estimate, he hasn't given it in public yet, is that it's, broadly speaking, 75% as potent as Delta. Now, if that 75% figure is a lot lower, um, as I suspect it probably will, be, then we could be looking for a far milder scenario. But that is one, I'm not sure that vaccines necessarily are the slam dunk against Omicron, not in the same way that they were because of a difference in in efficacy testing. Thank you, Fraser. Thank you, James. And thank you, Isabel.